the decisions that we make, if we make them or not, can really benefit the next generation of leaders. And so if we are leaning into more compassion, right? If we're being more flexible, if we're redefining success and work, then we get to make sure that the workplace is better than we found it. And I think that if people realize that we hold a lot of power right now to put in the processes and guardrails to make the workplace better for everybody. And so I think that especially being in quarantine, it's given people, they've had to even look at what their work life looks like, right? So when you're talking or on a podcast and your child like hops on your lap or something like that, right? You know, like everybody has been in one of these, oh, I'm sorry moments. And it just humanizes the workplace more. And I think that when we remember this moment, we can make better decisions on how the workplace can work for everybody. everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is author and speaker Minda Hartz. If you've ever wondered who's fighting for women of color to get a seat at the table, well, that's Minda and her book, The Memo, has opened doors for women and other authors to talk about what's really happening in the world of work. On top of her nationally recognized book, Minda also has a terrific LinkedIn account, a prolific blog, a great Instagram and Twitter account. But more importantly, she's a podcaster just like me. In fact, she's a lot better. And you can listen to her show, Secure the Seat, weekly wherever you get podcasts. I'm so excited to talk to someone who's just kicking butt and taking names. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Minda Hartz. Hey, Minda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lori. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. Listen, any day with Minda Hearts is a great day. So I'm super excited that we finally get to connect in real life. I've been following you for what feels like years. And Minda, it seems like your world is on fire in a great way. Yeah, it's it's bittersweet a little bit. You know, in the backdrop of this racial, I guess, tension in our country, it's the work that I do, but also I know that there's a lot of trauma on the other end of it as well. So it's one of those things where I say yes and and put the little dots after. Totally makes sense. Well, for those in my community who don't know who you are, which is like nobody, everybody knows who you are. Why don't you tell us who is Minda Hearts and what do you do? Yeah, I appreciate that. So for me, I I call myself a career revolutionary because my goal is to make the workplace better than I found it. And sometimes that requires leaning into our courage and pushing aside our caution because nobody benefits when we're cautious. And so I looked at myself, what am I going to do to leave a legacy of a better workplace? And as a woman of color, as a Black woman, I realized there wasn't a lot of content and conversation around our experiences in the workplace. And so I set out to create a company, The Memo LLC, and then books and podcasts just to make sure that there's a body of work for women who have felt left out of the conversation at the table that they feel like they have the resources to move forward in their career. Well, let's talk about some of the different mediums that you use to get your message out. You mentioned podcast, book, you're prolific on TV. Like, where do you want to get started? What's part of your empire? You know, it's funny because when I first started back in 2015, I wasn't sure where I wanted to begin, but I just started through blogging was the very first thing that I did. I said, you know what? I was still working with Corporate America at the time. And I said, well, what capacity do I have to start to share my story? And so every Monday I committed to putting out a newsletter, Memo Mondays. And I still, even to this day, Lori, I still put out that Memo Monday. And so that was part of the empire, if you will. And then 
from there, I put out webinars. And from there, I became more active on Twitter and then building out more content. And so it really has been a journey for me. So when people say, oh, you're everywhere. It's like, why? Well, I, I didn't start everywhere. I might be there. <laughs> it, it was a slow motion road to where we are right now. Do you find that writing is your core competency? Because for me, I identify as a writer and writing is thinking. And so I cannot even begin... I mean, sure, I can hop on video and do some quick extemporaneous thing, but I can't begin to do anything meaningful in my life unless I've started from writing. What's your process like? Yeah, it's the same actually. But I never considered myself a writer, not in the traditional sense, because I always like to write, but only for really my consumption. And then (laughs) going from there, because it... It helps me ideate. And then once I get going, I'm like, oh, wait, there's something here. And, and you know, for me, then I'm really able... It's more therapeutic, right? Even the memo, writing the book, I didn't realize how much therapy that was for me just to get it out on paper and then realizing, wow, other people resonate with this too, right? And so I think writing has definitely been a form of advocacy and therapy at the same time. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the memo because it's currently going into a new release as a paperback. But what's the big idea behind it? What's it all about? Yeah, the big idea is I think sometimes when we talk about women in the workplace, we use these one size fits all approaches to things. And so I'm saying, hey, all women don't experience the workplace the same. And let's talk about that. And so for me, being a Black woman in the workplace, I was always the only one or one of few. And I often felt isolated and like I had to work 10 times harder just to be seen or taken seriously, even with the same credentials as someone who was my counterpart. And so I realized that, you know, we're not talking about some of these conversations. Yes, we talk about gender, but we don't talk about race. And so I wanted to marry the two. And the memo is one of the first books of its kind by a major publisher talking about the experiences of women of color in the workplace. And so it's a very special book in that sense, but more so it has done well enough so that others can now enter the space and tell their stories. And I think that's part of the big idea that I don't have all of the answers, but now I've cracked the door so that others can give more of their story too. Yeah, that's really terrific. Well, what are some of the lessons that people can find in the memo? Yeah, um, so many lessons. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just a few, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things I would say is this whole idea around showing up when it counts. So for one, for yourself, if you are a woman of color in the workplace, and even if you're not, what does self-advocacy look like? Because many of us still work for someone else. And oftentimes we're like, why don't they see us? Why don't they know what I want out of my career? And the reality is, you know, they're not going around always thinking of us top of mind. (laughs) So as much as we'd like them to. So part of that is how do you articulate your value and quantify your worth and center your career based on your needs and not everybody else's. And then the other part of it is, How can our colleagues show up for us in these situations and close this empathy gap, right? So no more saying, oh, that's just Tom being Tom, but realizing that Tom being Tom is causing me pain, right? And so (laughs) opening up some of these conversations that, yeah, Tom might be a good guy, but Tom might also be racially harassing me and (laughs) both can be true at the same time, right? I wonder how you've learned some of these lessons. You know, a lot of people write books based on ideas they have. And some people write books based on like a loosely sketched out autobiography. What's the memo like? Where do you pull from and what are you sharing? Yeah, I guess it's a quasi memoir. (laughs) You know, I I didn't want to put it. I'd say quasi memoir, quasi self-help book, because I do share a lot of my lived experiences, my personal experiences within being a Black woman in the workplace. And so for me, I was very vulnerable 
in a sense that I wasn't vulnerable before because, you know, in theory, I want to be the strong black woman, right? But realizing that that's too tough to do. And so here's, here's some good moments that I had, but here's also some struggles. And had my colleagues maybe been more understood what good looked like, what being a good colleague looked like, or understanding that my experiences are just as valid as theirs, I think we could have made the workplace better, right? But instead, I cried some of the same tears my grandmother cried in the workplace. And, and I wrote this book so that that doesn't have to keep happening. You know, it's really interesting because you talk about your experience, your lived experience. And as a woman who's just written my own book, I really had to keep my target reader in mind. I had to keep my own story in mind, but I wanted to create some universal themes and make the book accessible to readers who may stumble on it, or I don't know, maybe their friend recommends it. So what was your writing process like? Did you struggle with that as well? Or was that a little bit easier for you? Yeah, congratulations again. You know, and you probably know this, it's a lot harder than it seems to really get down and and write and share your story. But I wrote the book with women of color in mind. That was my initial target audience, because I knew that there hadn't been a book like this, right? And I knew that if I don't tell the stories that need to be told, then they're not going to maybe get the advice that they've been waiting to hear. So I had to say, okay, if I'm going to write this book, then I really have to be honest on all fronts and share that sauce. But then on the other side, I couldn't write a book just for women of color. I needed to write a book in which our allies, our managers would also be able to have some insight into what it's like to be us when we're in the workplace. And so I wanted to be able to marry the two groups together. You know, our unconscious bias might say, oh, that book is just for them, but it's just as much for me as it is for everyone else because we all have to work together, right? And we can be better managers or better colleagues when we understand the person who's across the the Zoom call or in a physical environment next to us. Well, I am so interested in that because that was a primary struggle for me to really get that voice and tone right because I had this experience being this woman in the workplace and going through all of my own, you know, journeys and adventures that I went on. And I want to name names and I want to call it out, but I also want to invite people to, first of all, read it and then change their behaviors. So did you find that you had to pivot your tone sometimes? Because I actually wrote a version of a couple of chapters and I'm like, oh no, I'm browbeating. I'm lecturing. You know, did you find yourself doing that? Or were you pretty consistent with your tone? You know what? I think there were times where I was almost probably policing myself because I'm like, oh, have I gone to the deep end? You know, like I, so I was always kind of playing devil's advocate. And even though I I had a really great editor too, but when I'd be writing, I'd be like, well, I don't want to hundred percent alienate, you know, white people when I talk about this story, but also I wouldn't let them know that this has been a problem, you know, (laughs) I'd I'd go back and make sure that I was using, okay, yes, I'm going to be hard right now, but know that it's mixed with love. Right. And, and I also wanted to write a book in a way that you feel like you're having a conversation with me at my house. You got a glass of wine, I got a ginger beer, and we're having a real conversation. And that's the way I decided to tackle it because race can sometimes be a hard pill for some people to swallow, whether you're in it or not. And I felt like I had to be conversational with the approach. Boy, that's a burden that a lot of authors don't have to have that you really had to dance with. So first of all, congratulations on doing that well in this book. But you know, maybe in the next book, just say it like it is. <laughs> you know, like Don't worry too much about your audience's feelings. But you're right, that is a balance that people have to strike. I wonder why you do what you do, because everybody has an origin story, right? And you alluded to it a little bit, the fact that you didn't have the support that you needed when you were in corporate America. But if you were to describe your origin story and what kind of birthed Minda Hearts to the woman she is today, what's that story? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. For me, it was really, I'll never forget the day, really. The one thing that I think people tend to forget is that racism doesn't just kill people, it kills careers too. And my whole life, I wanted to be in the C-suite. You know, that was the goal. No matter how hard I keep plugging, I invest in myself. And once I entered in this one particular environment that I write about, I realized that no matter how many relationships I had, no matter doing all the everything right, this environment just did not want me in it in that way. They wanted to box me in. And I remember experiencing so many different micro and macro aggressions in a way that I hadn't before. And I remember when I left the place, I went to sit in my car and I cried because I was just mourning the career that I had worked so hard to get to and realizing that all these factors that sometimes you could do everything right and still not get to your spot, right? And I realized it made me think about how many other women that look like me feel this exact same way. And it's funny because in the background in the car, when I turned it on, it was a Whitney Houston song, like, where do broken hearts go? And I thought, where do the broken hearts go of women of color when we can't take it anymore? And then in that moment, Lori, I said, I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure that women who worked really hard don't have to lean out because of bad characters, right? So if I have to share my story, if I have to create content so that people feel seen and heard, then I'm going to go the distance. And that was my origin. And, and from that day forward, I've just been put on the gas. You know, there are a lot of stories like that among a variety of different people where if it weren't for this one environment, they may still be doing something that they loved or that they were passionate about. But Minda, you've showed them. I mean, like you are the CEO of your life, which is the ultimate goal. And not only have you written this really great book, The Memo, but you've got a podcast and you've got this burgeoning media empire. So tell us a little bit about the podcast. Yeah. So the podcast came before the book and it's called Secure the Seat. And it was just when I think about body of work, and I'm sure you probably look at your work this way too, is you have these different outlets that people find you on, right? So you might have your Twitter people, you might have your LinkedIn people, <laughs> your podcast people. So, you know, some people who engage with me on Twitter, you know, they may never engage with me on LinkedIn, you know, so the, the podcast was that place to kind of bring everybody in and have conversations where it's not just my voice, but bringing in other thought leaders so that they can see, hey, if I could do it, you could do it too. But guess who else is doing it as well, you know, and so really being able just to bridge that gap. And even though I started the podcast, again, with women of color in mind, I have so many just men and women of all races and creeds and colors and ages that chime in because I think we all are looking for just good content, right? And and some of it may resonate with others in a different way, but I really wanted to create this body of work in which I'm able to get different intersections that would resonate with the content. You know, that's really interesting that you brought up how your Twitter people aren't necessarily your LinkedIn people and you're trying to create that centralized hub to talk to them. And for you, it may be the podcast. I wonder how you know you're making a difference with your multiple communities. How do you know you're doing the revolutionary work that you've set out to do? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because I actually was thinking about this this morning as I was doing some writing and I thought, you know, what is most important? Is it most important to be the the New York Times bestseller, or is it the impact, right? What is the thing that wakes you up and drives you? And not to say that either one is a bad thing, but one of the things that I said to myself, you know what makes me feel alive is hearing from people, right? When I read the comments, when I get the emails, when I hear women reach out to me and say, it was because of this episode or this chapter that helped me lean into my courage and ask for what I wanted. And that trumps or supersedes everything, <laughs> We're going to kill the word Trump in our language these days. <laughs> I had to get it back in my mouth. I'm like, don't say it. 
I love that you are creating these different avenues to reach people. And you know, you make a difference when you've heard from individuals. You know, it's funny because kind of like in corporate America, I find the longer I do this, the more I just hear from complainers. And so where it used to be a joy for me to go out onto LinkedIn or Twitter to read my inbox, now just because of the changing nature of our society, I hear from people who would do it a different way, don't like the way I've said it, don't like the way I've represented myself online. And I wonder, I mean, maybe it's just me because I'm a jerk. I have no idea. But do you hear from people like that? And what do you do with those individuals? Yeah, well, you're not a jerk, but yes, I do hear from them. I have two ways that I think about it. There's always going to be somebody who's complaining about what you do. (laughs) That's just the nature. They have nothing better to do with their time. But what I know is that I don't focus on who isn't interested in what I'm doing or who doesn't like it. I focus on who is because I know that it's helping more people than not. And then the other thing that really helped me is Brene Brown always talks about don't listen to the people in the cheap seats, right? Because it takes a lot to get in the arena. And I always think of that, like, maybe I'm not doing it 100% right, but what the hell? You're not even down here trying at all. Like, so don't send me a message. (laughs) And that's really helped me because you can go down that rabbit hole of like, well, what are people saying? What are they thinking? And it's like, you know, they're not in the arena. So those opinions I can't take, they can't go where I'm headed. You know, it's so interesting that you brought that up because I think for years I had imposter syndrome, like so many individuals, like so many women, right? And I think you may or may not be able to relate to this, but once I kind of got myself out of these toxic environments, I found that imposter syndrome was something people put on me and it actually gave them a competitive advantage. And once I started to kind of run my life like a business and take ownership and take accountability, as you alluded to earlier in the conversation, that imposter syndrome faded away. And I could actually see that that was something they wanted me to have. It gave them a sneaky advantage. So as we start to talk about like people throwing things at us online, I always remind myself like, it doesn't have to bother me. And when it bothers me, it's an advantage to them. So I don't know, do you have any thoughts on imposter syndrome and overcoming it? Because just by virtue of being a Black woman, the world wants you to have imposter syndrome. Like we as a majority group of white people have benefited from it for so long. So what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I struggled with a good portion of my career. But to your point, it's that system of oppression. Imposter syndrome was created so that we'd always second guess ourselves, right? Or always be worried about what someone else is thinking of us. And for so much of my career, and even early into my entrepreneurship, I was like, who's thinking what? What, you know, I don't want to do this thing because I might make so-and-so upset. And then I had to take back the narrative. I'm like, I have the power to redefine what success means to me. And, you know, everyone again is going to have their, I should have done it this way or whatever, even family, you know, like, <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's your narrative. That's not mine. And I don't have to accept that, but it takes a lot of work, right? Lori, like even someone had said something negative to me, they called me a racist on Twitter. And part of me, I wanted to like, explain myself and do all these things and go down this hole. And I'm like, I don't have the energy. And it is what it is. If that's what you have gathered from all the work that I do, then I feel sorry for you. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally accurate. Well, you said something really interesting in that you know what success means for you. Like you've done the work of defining it for you. So what does success mean for you? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, for so long, I was back to kind of the imposter syndrome too. I was looking at what society has told me is successful, right? You know, the white picket fence, all those things. And for some people that can be success. But for me, realizing, oh, you know what? 
I need to create a space in which I'm saying yes to the things I want to say yes to and no to the things I don't want to say, you know, yes to and creating that space. So for me, it's time, right? How am I spending my time? And for me, that's the success. But it took me a long time. I thought I had to have a title. I thought I had to have all these things. And even when I had those things, I wasn't any happier. You know, <laughs> so, so now I realize that I get to redefine what success means to me and everybody else, they can feel free to do the same for them. But and once you understand and own your own story, you have very little room of tolerance for people who try to project anything else onto you. <laughs> That is so true. You know, it's funny that you brought up time because I think that's, for me, one of the ultimate markers of success. And there are these moments I have where, especially as an entrepreneur, this is so important. I'm on Twitter reading something or I'm on Instagram and it's not making me feel good. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm never going to get those two minutes back. I'm never going to get those four minutes back. If I don't have control of my time, what do I really have as a business owner, as a leader? So time has just been this really important thing that's emerged in my life. How did you know when you were successful and you kind of owned your time? Did you have these moments like me where you're like, I'm creating my schedule, I'm loving my day? Like, what's that journey been like for you? Yeah, it's funny because even though I was doing the work that I love, I wasn't enjoying everything that I was saying yes to. And that was the part where I was like, oh, now I'm dreading going through the rest of this day. And I'm like, I shouldn't be feeling that. And I have control over that. And I had to, again, remind myself that I have control over my schedule and you need to take control of it because you can't be mad at all these other people that you've said yes to. You've created this scenario in your mind. So So what I hear is you're like everybody, sometimes you're your own worst enemy. (laughs) Absolutely. And for me, really, the pivotal point has been in quarantine because now that you're like, oh, I'm not going anywhere. I could say yes to a few more things, right? Or this and that. And then I was finding myself back to where I started. Like I'm drowning in work. I don't have time to write. I'm not meeting these deadlines. And so then I'm like anxious all the damn time, right? So now (laughs) like, I don't like that feeling. I have control over it. And then I, I can't adhere to like, fear missing out. Like I remind myself what's for me is for me, you know? So if it's not right now, then something else will come later. You know, like everything doesn't have to happen in September, right? <laughs> so it's like, I tell myself a new story every day because I have to remind myself of why I'm doing what I'm doing and how we create that success. And that's owning my time, right? Because I want to have the space to be able to breathe. If I say yes to a lot of things, I am suffocating myself. And I really relate to this entrepreneurial point of view because I have often said to people like, I am unhappy and I should be earning PTO. (laughs) And I am unhappy. Where's my 401k, right? Where's my employer contribution? So if I don't have those things, why am I living this old school, top-down, hierarchical life that I used to live? So I really, to your point, almost every day when I look at my calendar in the morning and I look at the night before, but when I check back in the morning, I think if there's something I can cut, I'm going to cut it because I just want to make sure I'm doing the work that I want to do, that I need to do to get my ideas out there. I'm so glad we're like on the same wavelength on this because one of the things about entrepreneurship is it can be kind of lonely and kind of isolating. I don't know. Have you felt that way? Yeah, I absolutely have. And especially I think in quarantine, I probably felt a little more isolated, even though I'm still engaging with a lot of people. But I think in terms of just having like that, I feel like so many of us are just running from one Zoom call to the next in our seat, right? That we don't... (laughs) haven't created that space. And so I'm happy that you're also feeling that way too, because I think sometimes when we're not talking about these things out loud, we're internalizing a lot of stuff, you know, that may or may not be true. And so I think it's good to hear that validation sometimes to remind us that we're on the right track. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I love that. You know, I'm wondering as we start to think about the 
end of the conversation, you know, and I wish these things could go on for like hours, but I know you're super busy and I want to be respectful of your time. I wonder if there are things about the world of work that still positively surprise you. Like, do you ever have a moment where you're like, oh yeah, that's better than I thought? Yeah, actually I do. And at the heart of like who I am, I'm an optimist. So I always try to see the good in all the situations. But one thing that I will say is I've been surprised at how flexible I think companies are being with some of their employees. Back in the old days, you know, like work had to be this thing, right? This is what work looks like. And I think that leaders are allowing themselves to redefine success and what work means, right? And so working from home, you could still get your job done. Everything doesn't necessarily have to be in the office and having that flexibility. So I think that empathy, closing the empathy gap, I've just seen leaders be more empathetic than I think I've seen in the past. And so that inspires me that there's some good things to come. God, I really love that answer. You know, I hadn't thought about the positive impact of flexibility, but you're right. It's definitely new and it's a shift in our society. To your point, you're optimistic about the future of work, but I wonder if you can articulate why. Like what makes you an optimist? What makes you excited about the opportunity for people going forward? Yeah, I think we're at a really pivotal time in our society that the decisions that we make, if we make them or not, can really benefit the next generation of leaders. And so if we are leaning into more compassion, right? If we're being more flexible, if we're redefining success and work, then we get to make sure that the workplace is better than we found it. And I think that if people realize that we hold a lot of power right now to put in the processes and guardrails to make the workplace better for everybody. And so I think that especially being in quarantine, it's given people, they've had to even look at what their work life looks like, right? So when you're talking or on a podcast and your child like hops on your lap or something like that, right? You know, like everybody has been in one of these, oh, I'm sorry moments. And it just humanizes the workplace more. And I think that when we remember this moment, we can make better decisions on how the workplace can work for everybody. Well, I love that. That's super well said. And I'm really appreciative that you took the time out today to come on the podcast and endure my fangirling. I'm so excited to have you as a guest. And if people want to find you, if they want to reach out, like, where are you? What's the best way to get you? You can go to mindahearts.com, but I'm most active on Twitter. So find me at mindahearts. You are. I love your Twitter account. It's one of my favorite ones that I follow. So thanks so much for doing the work that you do and being a guest on Punk Rock HR. And thank you for the work that you do to shine a light on other voices. Appreciate you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Minda Hearts. Now, the paperback version of the memo is coming out on September 15th. That's right around the corner. And I want you all to know that you can head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-126. You can find out where to buy the paperback and also where to participate in a cool virtual experience that Minda has created. So again, it's laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-126. That is the place to go for links, goodness, paperback, virtual experience, and everything Minda hearts. Now that's all for today's show, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. 